Hey, we are in Luke chapter 6, verse 27 through 36. So if you have your Bible, a copy of God's Word, or your phone, you can turn to Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 36. We're in a new series called Share Hope. Uh, the word share denotes movement or action. Hope is a content-specific uh, hope. We're talking about share hope, not just any hope, but the hope of Christ. And so over the next uh, eight weeks, we're going to be talking about uh, from various passages in the Gospel of Luke about share hope. And this morning, I have the task of talking about sharing hope with your enemies. Sharing hope with your enemies, to love your enemies. And so let's read what God's Word says to us. And if you will, just out of the reverence of God's Word, let's stand together if you are physically able. And uh, I'll read just the first several verses. Here's what God's Word says to us. But I say to you here, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, so do to them. Let's pray together. Father, I pray as we hear your voice and your scriptures that we would sit under the word of God. This is a very difficult commandment that you give to us, Jesus, to love people who hate us, who abuse us, who mistreat us. Father, we know that's rooted because in verse 36, you tell us, be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. And Jesus, you are the epitome of grace and mercy. You do not give to us what we deserve. Help us to be mindful of the words of Jesus and that we might believe and do them to the glory of our great King, whose name is Christ. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> do you have any enemies? Um, as I thought about this message, <clears throat> I was talking with Ryan Brown, one of our pastors, and I, I had a, an illustration I was going to share, but sometimes when you share illustrations um, that are true and right, they're, they're so grandiose and, and, and it's hard to get a handle around them, so I chose not to share that illustration, but I want to share a personal illustration, and it's going to make me look really bad. And, and I, I, told, I told Elizabeth yesterday in the hospital, she goes, that's that's really heavy. Are you going to share that? And I said, I think I might. She goes, okay. So, so here it is. So I, I had an enemy in high school. I was, uh, before I married my bride, before I came to my senses and realized she was the only one, I, I dated a girl. And uh, we started dating as she was dating another guy. That's, that's not good to do. And he appropriately hated me, and I hated him. He was not a good guy. He didn't treat her well, physically, verbally. And so she was a very close friend of mine. We began to date, and they broke up. And so he hated me, and I hated him. And we would do the shoulder shrug, like in high school, like you act like you don't understand your physical space, and you can, you, you know, you do that in high school, right? I know none of you have ever done that or thought about that. And uh, and we, you know, we threw each other against lockers a couple times, and teachers weren't watching. And so I hated him. He hated me, and had some exchanges in the parking lot. And he was a baseball player, and he was a pitcher, and he. Um, was pitching, and the batter hit a line drive and hit him right in the face. And uh, had to have surgery, and the doctor said, you can never play baseball again, because if, if you play baseball again and, and the baseball hits you in the face, you could go blind. 
Now, here's the part I'm going to tell you, and it's going to make me look really bad. So I want you to listen to Jesus, not me preaching this morning. And this illustration is going to do it, okay? I thought if I ever get into a fight with him, you know where I'm going to go? You know what I'm going to go for? I'm going to go for his face. I'm going to hit him in the face. I hated him. If there was one guy that I wish that God would remove from the face of the earth, it was him. Now, that's wicked, isn't it? I mean, that's just wrong, all sorts of wrong. I mean, apart from Jesus, I'm a mess. And with Jesus, I'm still a mess. And how did that story end? Well, you got to stick around for the hour and 27-minute sermon, and I'll <laughs> share with you at the end. But do you have enemies? Do you get angry and irritated with people? Maybe a greedy politician, a dictator who persecutes the church. We would say, yeah, we have those enemies. But at times... We don't have a handle. It's not personal. So here's some, maybe some examples. An angry neighbor, um, an adulterous spouse who has left you, a, ho- a hostile spouse who's verbally, physically, maybe even sexually abusive, a drunk driver who kills an innocent bystander, the demeaning, condescending boss who takes every opportunity to make you look like a fool in front of your peers, I mean, we, we've all got people in our lives that we just, we just don't like. And, and we're, we're really good at not saying things like, I hate them because it sounds so wrong and so unchristian, and it is. But if we're honest this morning, and if I could ha- somehow supernaturally project everything on the screen that's in your heart, we may not let you in to Grayson this morning, and you might not let me preach. There's the Christian life. We bring our sin, Jesus brings forgiveness. And so we have people in our lives that are enemies that we don't care for, that we certainly don't love. And we see in these words the relevance of Jesus' words and the difficulty of Jesus' words. I think this is perhaps the most difficult commandment he gives to us, to love our enemies. And love has become a very cheap word. It can mean all things, which means it means nothing at times. And Jesus, this great moral teacher, teaches us a lot about Love And the scope and the depth of love is seen, obviously, in the work of Christ on the cross. And in this passage, uh, part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus calls us to live out loving for our neighbors uh, in two ways. He tells us whom we are to love, whom we are to love, and how we are to love. Now, the context is this. Jesus has just called 12 men to be his apostles, his disciples, and he is going to uh, set them apart to go out into all the world to preach the gospel. And he begins to teach them uh, about what they are going to be exposed to as they go out and preach the gospel, which is, uh, which is true for us as well. He says you're going to endure poverty, you're going to endure hunger, you're going to endure sorrow, and then he says you're going to endure persecution. There are going to be people who don't just not like your message, but hate your message. And they're going to hate me. Jesus says elsewhere in the book of John, if people hate you, remember that they hated me first. And part of whether or not we know that we're actually believing and following Jesus in the way that we're supposed to believe and follow Jesus is are there people around us that don't particularly care for us? It's not that we need to go on some campaign for the world to hate us, but if you live out the ethic and the message of Jesus, there are going to be people in your family in your neighborhoods that don't care for you. So how are we to love our enemies? Now, there's lots of definitions of love. In the Greek culture, they had four. They had a romantic love, a word for romantic love. They had a word for natural affection for your family, 
They had a word that meant love for friendship, but that's not what Jesus is talking about here in Luke 6 and where we see elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 13 and many other instances where we're called to love one another. This is an agape love, a love that has a love for the unworthy. So it's different than natural affection because agape love is unnatural. To love your enemies is unnatural. It's not romantic love because you don't fall into this love. Like you'll hear people say, I fell in love with her, I fell in love with him, which by the way, you don't fall into love, you fall into holes. Um, you, don't, you don't fall into love, right? You make a decision to love, but there's a, there's a love of friendship. There's a natural affection, but this is not romantic love, and it's not just a love for friends because this is not just a love that Jesus calls us to love friends. He says, love enemies. A good working definition is this, a deep concern for the well-being of another person which flavors all of your activities so that all of your actions are for them. A deep concern for the well-being of another person that flavors all of your activity, all of your words, your posture, so that you think about them and not yourself. It's a love that denotes a spontaneous, creative, unmotivated, free love. It's a love that speaks to respect and care for people who may not seem attractive or appealing to you because of their culture, because of their race, because of their gender, because of their concerns, because of their values, because of their sexuality, because of their political beliefs, fill in the blank. But we love them because they are a human being. We love them because they are a human being. And what motivates Christian love is a prior experience where we have received love in our lives. We don't love people based upon a reciprocal return. That's not what Christians do. You are kind to me. You are patient to me. You are gentle of me. You are self-controlled to me. So I'm going to be gentle, self-controlled, and faithful to you. That's not what Christians do. In spite of who you are, I'm going to make a decision to love you. Why? Because that's what Christians do. Because it's rooted in the good news of Christ. God did not look down upon us and say, you were lovely and lovable, and let me choose to show you love. No, he looked down in spite of who we are and chose to love us. So what motivates a Christian to love is an experience where we've received the love of Christ in our lives, which means if you're not a Christian this morning, we're really thankful that you're here. I think every week we, we have many people who really at the end of the day are not trusting in Jesus. They're trusting in their morality. They're trusting in their good deeds. They're trusting in a prior experience. They're trusting in a decision that they may have made. They're, tr they're, not, they're trusting in something other than Jesus and Jesus alone. And we're grateful and humbled that you're here. You could be a lot of places and we don't want to take for granted the fact that you've, you've come to worship with us. And so we're grateful. But you can't really love people the way that God wants you to love if you first have not been changed by the love of Jesus. So we want you to know that love, to come to understand that. I want you to see two things in this passage, whom we are to love, our enemies, whom we are to love, our enemies, and secondly, how we are to love, whom we are to love, our enemies. Now, disdain and hatred for our enemies feels like one of the most natural things to do to have hatred for people who are our enemies just feels natural. People who've treated us harshly and appropriately, maybe they've been verbally, physically abusive, they've been violent. Consequently, our hearts are hard towards them. 
And so we think retaliation is only right, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But Jesus says, love them. And this is perhaps, as I've already said, I think the most difficult commandment that Jesus has given to us followers. Love your enemies. And just to be clear, the religious cadre at the time said this, the Pharisees and the scribes said this, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy, which by the way, when they said, when the Pharisees and scribes said, love your enemy, love your neighbor, they meant the people that are like you. Jews love Jews, Gentiles love Gentiles. So let me fast forward today. What would that look like today? Republicans love Republicans, Democrats love Democrats, Libertarians love Libertarians, the people who don't care love the people who don't care, blacks love blacks, white loves whites, tall people love tall people, short people love short people. You get the idea. Love the people that are like you. Don't love the people that are different from you in gender, sexuality, political beliefs, uh, race, uh, language. You love the people that fit in your lane, but don't love the people that are different from you. In fact, the religious cadre at the time said, hate your enemy. And Jesus comes and says, love your enemies. This is not don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. That's a law of inaction. But Jesus is giving us a law, a commandment of action. He says something more positive and more demanding. Love your enemies and do good to them. It's really quite crushing, isn't it? I mean, it's just, when you really sit and think about the ethic and the message of Jesus, it's quite crushing because I do not want to love people who are friends and family at times, let alone enemies that malign my character, that don't want to follow my leadership, that don't give me the benefit of the doubt, that gossip about me. I don't want to love those people. And there is this counter-cultural nature of believing and following Jesus. And you see in the listening guide, there's five things that Jesus tells us to do. They are in the imperative. They're, they're in the present tense, meaning he's asking us to continually do these things. And they are do good. I believe they're on the screens. Do good. Bless others. Pray for others. Turn your jaw, meaning when somebody gives you a right hook, you turn around and you let them punch you on the left side of the face. Turn your jaw and give as needed. They're they're imperatives, they're commands, and they're in the present tense, meaning continually do good, continually bless, continually pray. And we're not to reciprocate in like manner, but we are to reciprocate in a disproportionate manner. I'm not going to treat you, I'm not going to respond to you in the way that you have treated me. I'm going to bless you, I'm not going to curse you. I'm going to do good to you. I'm going to pray for you. This is this was offensive in the context, the cultural context of Jesus' day. This was scandalous. To not treat others the way that they treated you was unjust. It just was not rational to love your enemies. And there isn't a love in the world that compares to the agape love that simultaneously frees us and keeps us from becoming like our enemies and also can bring freedom and release to people who live in hatred and opposition to God. And agape love is a, it's a love for the unworthy and it's a powerful, supernatural, life-changing, eternity-altering love. question that I asked as I was 
preparing, what prompted God to love the world? What prompted God to love you and me? Was it our treatment of God? Was it our moral stance, our moral goodness, our moral superiority? God, who is love, according to 1 John chapter 4, his actions are governed by his character. He cannot ever do anything that is outside his character. So God, who is love, is governed by his essence of being love. And he shows every person in the world love by sending his son. God loved the world. If your name's Tracy or Robert or Greg or Nathan or Samantha or Ryan, God loved you. You're in the world. God loved you. And he gave his son. So the love that we are to have is entirely and altogether in spite of what our, our enemies, how they respond to us. That's the type of love we are to have. Why? Because it's rooted in the character of God. It's rooted in the character of God, not in people's treatment of us. So we're talking about share hope. Share hope, uh, action-oriented word, hope, the expectation of something good, as the Bible defines hope. What is the expectation of something good? It's that we have freedom and forgiveness and hope and joy and citizenship and all these truths and promises all find their yes in Christ, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, and we want to share hope with our enemies. And so what I'm going to do in about 15 minutes or so I'm going to ask you to respond. I'm going to ask you to actually stand as we sing, but I'm going to ask you to move to the right or move to the left. And honestly, and I, this is where a pastor puts himself out there, and if it doesn't happen, you kind of, do you feel foolish when people don't respond? I don't feel foolish because the Spirit of God's always doing a million and one things. But I'm going to ask you to respond because there's some people in your life that you don't care for. And if you're being real honest, you have disdain for a spouse, a family member, a boss, a neighbor, and truth is you have not loved them. We, we have done a poor job of, of being loving to people around us that are not like us. I'm going to ask you to move to your right, move to your left, and to come forward, to come to the steps and pray a prayer of confession. God, I've not done this. I want to agree with you. I've not done this. And a prayer of request. God, would you give me courage would you give me courage and would you give me a brokenness for the people around me? Because I don't see people the way that you see them. So I'm going to ask you to respond. I'm going to ask you to come up and to pray, and we'd love to pray with you. Our behavior to love our enemies, to share hope with our enemies, is rooted in the character of God, not in people's treatment of us. And the only thing that can enable a man or woman or boy or girl to not hit back, to turn the other cheek, to go the extra mile, to give when it's needed, to help others, is that a man or a woman should be dead to themselves, should be dead to our own self-interest, should be dead to our own reputation, should be dead to our own concerns. The only way to detach yourself from what others do to you is to detach yourself from yourself. That was wordy, wasn't it? Let me say it again. The only way to detach yourself from what others do to you is to detach yourself from yourself. Here's what I mean by that. A Christian is a person who has been taken out of the world, so to speak, and given a new hope and a new destiny that lies beyond this world. We belong to a new kingdom, right? 
As Jesus says in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, he says the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it's present, and in light of the new kingdom, which has a new king, which is Jesus, here's what you need to do. You need to repent of your sins and believe. And when you become a Christian, one of the ways that we can describe being a Christian is Jesus is my king, he's my sovereign, he's my ruler, I'm coming under the reign of Christ. I'm not sovereign, I'm not independent anymore, I'm gonna come under his dependence. And so he says, Uh, repent and believe, and there's a new kingdom. A Christian is somebody who is a new king because we're in his kingdom with a new ruler. And someone who's a new man, a new woman, a new creation, a new person, a new countercultural ethic and posture and perspective. This is not our home, which means we live and think and see and treat and love differently than the world loves. So we're not governed by people's actions. We don't let people control the way that we love them. Why? Because our posture, our faith, our sharing hope with the world is not dependent upon people loving us because God and his character loved us when we were his enemies. Aren't you grateful that God moved towards his enemies? He moved towards you. He moved towards me. And so we want to share hope with our enemies. We want to love our enemies. I'm going to ask you in about nine minutes to make a decision. Some of you don't know Christ. You need to become a Christian and God loves you even when you are right now his enemy and he wants you to become a friend. He wants you to be forgiven and know a love that's eternity altering. A lot of us in the room, as we think about our lives, we've not loved people, particularly our enemies. And that this is a commandment. We're not excused from this because this is difficult, right? Part of preaching is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And this is one of these truths where we've gotten comfortable, where we don't love our enemies. And so my job this morning is to afflict my own heart, where I've not loved people well, and to afflict your heart, where we're comfortable. We've not loved people well. Well, how far are we to love? He tells us, as you see on the screens, all those imperatives to bless, to pray, to give. He says, if someone strikes you, It means to actually, in the original language, to get socked in the jaw. Someone socks you in the jaw, turn your other cheek. Christians weren't called to defend themselves, but expose themselves to evil and injustice. It's a provocative response. It means to almost like invite more aggression. And we see this all throughout history, that there are these teachings of Jesus rooted in Luke 6, these unconventional and at times seemingly absurd teachings of Jesus that permeated a lot of movements throughout history. Let me give you some. Gandhi's unconventional behavior was the liberation of India from British rule. It's rooted in Luke 6. Gandhi, not a believer. His posture, his message, his ministry was rooted in Luke 6, to love your enemies. Martin Luther King gained massive gains of civil rights for African Americans, rooted in Luke 6, to love your enemies. It doesn't mean to be passive and let people just treat you harshly and be a doormat, but it means in the face of opposition to Jesus' teaching and in our country, racism and prejudice is in opposition to the person, the work of Christ, the Christian message. And Martin Luther King stood up and said, that's wrong, so I'm going to oppose that and I'm going to love my enemies. And massive gains for people all throughout the United States, a decade-long prayer for peace, And Protestant churches in the former East Germany broke ground not only for the fall of the Berlin Wall, 
but actually for the eventual collapse of the Soviet Union, rooted in Luke 6. The Truth and Reconciliation Movement in South Africa played a critical role in dismantling apartheid and sparing the nation from more bloodshed and revenge. In each instance, powerful and systemic structures of oppression were undermined by non-conventional, counterintuitive, seemingly absurd, non-violent practices modeled and guided by Jesus' teaching in Luke 6 to love your enemies. It's radical It's absurd, it's scandalous, and yet it changes people and undermines systemic movements of oppression. You might rebuff in your spirit, well, I don't really like that. Well, if you're a believer in Christ, you are the recipient of somebody loving his enemies. He calls us to love our enemies, not like our enemies. Liking is something which is more natural to do than loving. And even then, I have a hard time liking some people, right? Eight of you, eight of us. We're not called to like everybody. We can't do that, but we're commanded to love. We're commanded to love. It's impossible to like everyone because there's a million different details, right? Temperament and values and beliefs. But we can pray for somebody. We can bless somebody. We can do good to somebody. And what God is commanding us to do in this passage to love your enemies is to actually love a person and treat them as if you do like them. Because love is more than liking. Love is more than a feeling. It's more than symptomism. It's more than emotionalism. Love is love when it's manifested in action. Love is only love when it's manifested in action. If you were to read 1 Corinthians 13, it's really not a chapter to be read at weddings. Though if you read it at your wedding, that's great. We read it at ours. But as I read the Bible, it's actually not about that. It's an indictment on what the Corinthians weren't doing. They weren't being patient. They weren't being kind. And we read it like love is patient, love is kind. But actually in the original language, it's love does patience, love does kindness. That's why Paul describes love with verbs, not adjectives. Right? I said this at the Palmyra Campbell's. We would go to the zoo and my We'd look at the elephants and the rhinos and we'd say, they are big or they are gray or they are tall. And then my daughter would say, hey, can you go pet the lions? And I would say, yeah, you can pet the lions. A foolish person or a brave person would pet the lions, okay? You just, they're, they're adjectives, but that's not how we describe love. Love's not like big and tall and gray. Love does patience. Love does kindness. And what Jesus is doing in this passage He's not just telling us what we need to do. He, he, he's always calling us to believe something first. You don't do in order to believe. You believe and then you do. But so often what we teach is that you've got to do, 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 and once you do, you're good. But really, what you, you believe in order to do. That, that actual, that process is crucial because if you're doing in order to believe, that's not the gospel, right? We believe in the gospel and there the gospel, the goodness of Christ, empowers us to do what? love our enemies, to love our enemies. And what Jesus is doing in verse 36, he's actually showing us, eventually through his work on the cross, what verse 36 is. Be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. He's showing us what it means to be merciful, to not give to people what they deserve. What do our enemies deserve? What does the angry neighbor and the cantankerous spouse and the adulterous spouse or the condescending boss, what do they deserve? They do not deserve us to share hope with them. 
They do not deserve the message of Christ. They deserve a message of condemnation, aloofness. Uh, They deserve us to not engage with them, not to befriend them, not to serve them, not to bless them, not to do good to them, not not to do all those things that Jesus tells us to do. That's what they deserve. But mercy is not giving to people what they deserve. Why? Because we are the recipients of mercy. We're the recipients of grace. So we're to share hope with our enemies, to love our enemies. And I'm going to ask you in about three minutes and eight seconds to pray a prayer of confession. Confession means to agree. Jesus, I want to agree with you. I've not loved that high school classmate. I've had disdain for them. I've not loved my spouse that left me. I've hated them. I've not loved my condescending boss. I've I've hated them. What would happen? What would happen if we took the ethic and the message of Jesus seriously? To love our enemies? This is a love for the unworthy, a love that proceeds from God who is love. It's a love that is lavished on others without a thought of whether or not they are worthy. It proceeds from the nature of the lover. And if you're a believer, we know that Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if you are in Christ, you are a new, say it with me, new what? Creation. The old is gone, the what has come? The new. You're new. You have a new nature. So to love people like this flows from the nature of the lover. We love people because Jesus has changed us. And we should let this commandment break our heart. Jesus, you have loved me when I was your enemy. And I've kept that love to myself. I've not loved those who have not loved me. I've not loved those who have been unkind, impatient, who've maligned my character, who've left me, abandoned me. I've not loved them. And no doubt, I understand in the room this side with this many people, there are some crushingly difficult circumstances in your life. So I'm not trying to be trite or gloss over what's going on. And yet all of us are called to come under the Spirit of God who can empower us with this radical message to love even our enemies by sharing hope. By sharing hope. Fast forward about seven, eight years, this enemy of mine in high school still hated him, thought of him fairly frequently. I was married at this time, been married for four years, and I was at Southern Seminary studying to get my Master of Divinity I was going to be a master of divinity. I knew all things. I was an expert in divine things. I was standing by the mailboxes with a friend of mine, and there was that guy 20 feet from me. What is he doing on my campus? And as vividly as the senior year of high school, all those memories and exchanges and words and prayers and actions of contempt and hate flooded my mind. I leaned over to my friend. I said, you don't know what's about to happen. Just pray for courage. And I went over to my former enemy and I said, Adam, which was his name, hey, I, uh, he saw me and I saw him and our eyes kind of diverted real quickly, right? Because if you, if you look away real quickly, it, you can pretend like you didn't see each other. And I went over, he was selling rings for people who were graduating, and I said, hey, Adam, he goes, hey, Nate, man, I need to ask for your forgiveness because I just did such a poor job 
of representing Jesus to you. I'm a Christian, and man, I'm so sorry for the way I treated you. Will you please forgive me? He goes, oh, man. No, he goes, no, no, no. I said, my actions were so contrary to believing and following Jesus. I said, will you please forgive me? He goes, of, of course. Now, I didn't share hope with him, but I'll tell you what happened. The next, like, six months, I saw that joker nine times. <laughs> and every time I saw him, it wasn't awkward. It was more cordial than it certainly was in high school. We weren't shoving each other up an aisle two at Lowe's. But it was the beginning point of me realizing the ethic and the call of Jesus is radical. And it has changed my life. And Jesus is relentlessly committed to finding every area of our life that is unbecoming of believing and following him. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to stand. I want you to stand. Karma is going to come up and it's going to lead us in a song of worship. And I want you to um, pray with me that God might open our heart to where we've not been sharing hope the message of Christ with our enemies, with our enemies. So I'm going to ask you to respond. You can stay where you are, but I think at times there is the physical gesture of where we actually get up from our chairs, our pews, and we move around and we come and say, hey, I, I want to tell everybody in the room that there's some work in my life that I actually need to do. We're not trying to merit heaven. Heaven has already been earned for us from Christ. But this is a commandment that is one of the most difficult commandments to love your enemies. Why? It's rooted in the character of God. And we who once were his enemy have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And we are his friends. He delights in us. We're his sons and daughters of God. And we want to see more people, right? We want to see more people know this hope. So it's our call and our responsibility to share the hope of Christ, even with people that we call our enemies. So I'm going to pray and then you respond.